Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Libertarianism.org. Between Facebook posts by that guy that you knew in high school and the chain of emails forwarded by your aunt, it seems like political debate is just noise. Most of what's available isn't trustworthy or well-informed. So what do you do? You check out Libertarianism.org guides. Libertarianism.org guides are free, self-paced online courses taught by top professors and experts. Whether you're encountering ideas for a free and flourishing society for the first time or want to explore more, their free Libertarianism.org guides will help you get your footing. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and the wheels of justice are finally starting to turn in Smith County. Carrie Max Cook's actual innocence hearing has been rescheduled for June 6th. I will be heading down to Tyler for that week to attend the hearing. It's expected to last two or three days. So if any of you are available and can make it to the Smith County Courthouse on June 6th or 7th, Please make the effort to be there. We need to show all the support we can for Kerry Cook when he finally gets to face the Smith County prosecution and make his claim for actual innocence. Aside from that, there's been a lot of movement in Ed and Kenny's cases. We've got some exciting news, and I can't talk about it just yet, but soon to come you'll hear what's going on in these two cases. Getting back to our primary case right now, I want to review what we've done so far with the Edward Aids case. So far, we've broken down the state's case, we've analyzed the crime scene, and we've broken down Ed's timeline. Today, we're going to move on to breaking down the timeline of Elnora's ex-fiance, Leonard Mosley. Leonard and Elnora began dating in November of 1992. They were introduced by Elnora's cousin, Johnny. Johnny testified at trial that Leonard and Elnora were engaged. But at trial, Leonard Mosley described their relationship a little bit differently. He says they were never really engaged, that they were just talking about getting married. Two weeks before Elnora's murder, Leonard Mosley's ex-girlfriend, Angela Walker, moved back into his house. Now, it's stated at trial that Leonard and Angela have a child together, But it never comes out as to when they had this child, if it was before or after this. But in any case, two weeks prior to the murder, Angela moved back in. When questioned about this at trial, Leonard first describes his relationship with Angela Walker as friends. He says that she moved back in because he was helping out a friend. However, further questioning revealed that they actually slept in the same bed and they were intimate. I believe the direct quote from the defense attorney questioning him was, Let's just be clear. Were y'all having sex? And Leonard says yes, sometimes. Leonard said that he talked to Elnora about the move-in prior to Angela moving back into his house. 
He never really says if she was okay with it or if she was angry about it. He just said that they had talked about it beforehand. He did, however, say that Elnora was not aware of the fact that Leonard was being intimate with Angela Walker. Again, he was telling her that he was just helping a friend out, and that's why he let her move in. But on the flip side of that, Leonard did testify that Angela had found out that he had been talking about marrying Elnora, and when asked how she felt about it, Leonard just said she wasn't happy about it. Now, it's not clear if or when Leonard and Elnora broke up. At the time of the murder, they were still talking to each other and seeing each other routinely. Now, let's talk about that routine. Leonard Mosley had a consistent routine of visiting Elnora, and it's a routine that explains a lot of the elements of the crime scene. Leonard testified that his routine was to spend every Thursday night with Elnora. Those were his exact words. He went there every Thursday night. He said that he would get off work at Tyler Pipe at 11 p.m., he would take a shower at work, change into street clothes, and go to Elnora's trailer. Now here's the really interesting part. He testified that he would arrive at her house shortly after midnight and that she would always cook a meal for him to eat when he arrived. So this was Leonard's routine every Thursday night. He got off work at 11 o'clock, he would take a shower, go to Elnora's, and she would cook a meal for him. And in fact, this was supposed to be his routine on the night of the murder. He testified that he had planned to go to Elnora's that night, and that she was expecting him. He testified, eventually, that that morning at work, he was told that he had to work on Friday. Normally, Thursday was the end of his week. That's why he would go there Thursday night. It was payday, his week was over, he could spend the night with Elnora and not have to go to work the next morning. But he said that he couldn't go to Elnora's that night because he didn't have work clothes packed with him for the morning. So instead, he went straight home that night. So on its face, this seems reasonable. His routine was broken. He had to work Friday, where he normally didn't, so he didn't go to Elnora's. But Leonard Mosley's testimony is riddled with inconsistencies. I want to spend the next several minutes discussing all of the inconsistencies in Leonard Mosley's testimony. So let's start when Leonard found out that he had to work on Friday. The transcript of Leonard's testimony is already up on the website. In Leonard's first statement about how he found out he had to work on Friday is found on page 59. Leonard says there, quote, They told us earlier in the week we was going to work Friday. So on page 59, he's saying that he knew earlier in the week. But just a few minutes later, down on page 61, he says, quote, When I got to work Thursday, about 9 or 10 a.m., they told us we was going to have to work Friday. Now, there's another issue with this statement regarding the 9 or 10 a.m. time, but we'll discuss that here in a few minutes. But further down the trial transcript, on page 96, Leonard says that earlier in the week, his boss told him that they didn't have to work Friday. But then on Thursday, they told him that he was going to have to work Friday. So that was the change of plans. So we have three different statements. First, he says that earlier in the week, they said he had to work Friday. Then he says that 9 or 10 in the morning on Thursday, they told him he had to work Friday. Then he says that they told him earlier in the week that he didn't have to work Friday, but changed their mind on Thursday. Aside from when he found out, the bigger issue is, I can't figure out how this keeps him from going to see Elnora. 
Leonard lived approximately nine miles away from Elnora's trailer. It's about a 10-minute drive. He testified that his work hours were from 11.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. So he would get to her house late, he says around midnight or a little after, but he didn't have to go into work the next day until 11.30 in the morning. The fact that he didn't have work clothes is irrelevant to me. He still could have gone to her house, talked with Elnora like normal, had the meal, had sex, which is the other part of their routine, spent the night, and got up at 8 or 9 or 10 in the morning, ran home, put on some clean clothes, and went to work. And if he wasn't going to stay the night because he didn't have his clothes, he still could have stopped by Elnora's house, eaten the meal that he knew she was preparing for him, they still could have had their time together, and then he could have went home after that and slept in his own bed. Like I said, he only lived 10 minutes away. It's not like it was on the other side of town. And furthermore, if he had decided that he wasn't going to go over there that night, and he knew that she was expecting him, he knew that she was staying up late for him to get there, and he knew that she was going to be cooking a meal late at night just for him, he could have at least called her and told her that he wasn't coming. And maybe he did. Leonard testified that he tried to call Elnora to tell her he wasn't coming. He says he tried twice, and there was no answer, and there was no answering machine that picked up. But there's just one problem with that. Elnora did have an answering machine, and there was a message from Leonard Mosley on it. The message said that he would be over to visit her after work. Unfortunately, Jason Waller, crime scene investigator extraordinaire, did testify that there was a message on the answering machine tape from Leonard saying he would be by after work, but at trial he never mentioned where the message was on the tape, meaning there was no timestamp on it, or he says there was no timestamp on it. And I'm trying to remember way back in the 90s how those answering machines worked. I remember my parents had one that took a cassette tape, and it would tell you what time the call came in, but that feature may have been part of the machine and not on the actual tape. I'm not sure. But furthermore, Waller testified that he can't remember if the machine was on when he processed the crime scene. And I put can't remember in air quotes. So I've been trying to get a copy of that tape. I actually saw it in the exhibit box when I was in Tyler. I didn't have it copied because I was in a hurry, and at that time I didn't realize the relevance of it until after I read the trial transcripts. But I've requested it. I'm kind of getting the runaround a little bit, it seems like, but I am still waiting on a copy of that tape. Further examination of Leonard's testimony reveals some further inconsistencies regarding his work schedule, and we'll get to those inconsistencies right after the break. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Leonard's testimony about his work schedule is all over the place. He testified that he worked from 11.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. Monday through Thursday, and occasionally on Fridays if they had too much work to do. Now, I already mentioned that he gave three different versions of when he found out that he had to work on Friday. But within that testimony, he said that he was told that he had to work on Friday at work Thursday morning around 9 or 10. Everyone just breezed by this at trial. No one seemed to catch the fact that he said that he was told he had to work while he was at work two hours before he says he goes into work. Let me break that down again. He says that he goes into work every day at 11.30 and gets off at 11 p.m. Yet on this day, he says he was there between 9 and 10. But there's also a little piece of testimony later on in the transcripts where he says something to the effect of, we go in early on the last day. And again, that's just breezed by. But I'm assuming the last day is Thursday, because that's normally the last day of his work. And that would be consistent with this statement that says that he was getting that information at 9 or 10 in the morning, which is two hours before he's supposed to be there. I'll explain why this could be relevant here in just a minute. And that has to do with his timesheet. First of all, regarding this timesheet, I can't figure out for the life of me how this was allowed in at trial. My understanding of the rules of evidence are that someone can't testify from a document unless it's their document. They created it. And also, this timesheet has nothing identifying on it. There's someone's initials written on the bottom of it. But I just can't believe that the defense didn't require the person who created the document to come into trial and testify to the validity of it. I mean, it's a handwritten document. And also, this so-called timesheet doesn't have any specific times on it. It only has number of hours worked. So if you go on the website and you look at this timesheet, you'll see what I'm talking about because it can be kind of confusing. On the left side, it has everyone's name, all the employees, and then there are columns for each day of the week, and then each column is written the number of hours that they worked. And you'll see on that timesheet, in those columns, there's two numbers. There's a number on top, and there's a number just below it. So in Leonard Mosley's case, for each day of that week, Monday through Friday, there's a 10 with a 5 written below it. Leonard explains this at trial. He says that the top number, the 10, was the number of hours they worked that day. And then the number underneath it are the differential hours. Those are hours where they get a premium rate of pay because they're working a night shift. And he says they get those premium hours for any hour after 6 o'clock at night. So therefore, he says he works till 11, he gets paid 10 hours, and there's 5 hours from 6 to 11, so he gets those differential hours for that time. Now he says he works from 11.30 in the morning till 11 at night, and that's 10 hours. So I'm assuming there must be an hour and a half worth of breaks in there maybe an hour lunch and two 50-minute breaks or something like that. But the issue with him saying that they go in early on Thursdays and him saying that he got the news about having to work Friday at 9 or 10 in the morning Thursday is that Thursday only says that he worked 10 hours. So if he normally came in at 11.30 and 10 hours means he was there until 11 o'clock at night, then logic would indicate if he came in at 9 in the morning, two and a half hours early, and it still says he worked 10 hours, that he would have gotten off at 8.30 at night, two and a half hours earlier. But then there's also that differential pay. Now, there's no explanation of this on the sheet. We're just merely basing this off of his explanation of that number at trial. But he says that's the number of hours they worked after 6 o'clock. So we have him saying that that Thursday he was there at 9 in the morning. He's also saying he didn't leave until 11 o'clock at night. 
He's saying that five indicates he clearly worked five hours after six o'clock at night, but then he's only paid for a total of 10 hours for that day. And there's something else fishy about Leonard Mosley's hours. His timesheet shows that he worked 10 hours for five days for a total of 50 hours. You can see that on the timesheet. But then the next column over says overtime hours, and his overtime hours are listed as 13 hours. Now, any time after 40 hours is considered overtime. So you would expect it to say 50 hours total, 10 hours overtime. But for some reason, his says 13. And I thought this might just be some sort of strange accounting practice. But then when I look through the rest of the document at all of the other employees, every other employee on that timesheet, these numbers add up. There's one employee that works 49.9 hours. And it says 49.9 hours, 9.9 hours of overtime. There's another person on the timesheet that worked the exact same hours as Leonard. Their columns look identical. Monday through Friday, 10 hours, 5 hours differential. Monday through Friday, all 5 days, worked 50 hours, 10 hours overtime. So here we find ourselves again with another boyfriend, with another alibi problem, in another hinky timesheet. But the inconsistencies go even further. So we have the fact that he says he worked till 11, but he also says he was there at 9, and he was only paid for 10 hours. Now, Leonard got to the crime scene the night the body was found. Actually, Saturday morning, because it was after midnight. In that day, he gave a statement to Detective Huckel, and he told him that the night before, the night of the murder, that he got off work at 7 o'clock. Leonard was confronted with this at trial, and he just said it must have been a mistake. He said he always got off at 11. He claims that he never said that. So I don't really know what to do with that. But what I do know is there's nothing consistent about all of this. In another detail that struck me as inconsistent is that Leonard testified that it took 40 to 45 minutes to drive from Tyler Pipe to Elnora's trailer. And it took him about the same amount of time to get to his home from work. Like I said, Leonard only lived 8 or 9 miles away. But if he was going directly home, he could take a different route down I-20 and get there in about the same amount of time. So he explains his typical timeline as he gets off work at 11, takes a shower, around 11.15 or 11.20, he leaves to go home, takes him 40 to 45 minutes to get there, and he arrives home, or he arrives at Elnora's trailer around midnight or about 10 after midnight. And this is based on the 40 to 45 minute drive time. And he says that on the night of the murder, he got home at 12.10, just after midnight. But I've driven this area several times, and that didn't seem quite right to me. So I got on Google Maps and punched it in. And I have screenshots of this up on the website. Google Maps shows that it is a 17-mile drive from Tyler Pipe to Elnora Griffin's trailer. Factoring in the lights, the average travel time from Tyler Pipe to her trailer is 22 minutes. Now that's not just off by a little. 22 minutes is a long ways off from 40 to 45 minutes. And another inconsistency is Leonard's testimony about giving a co-worker, a guy named Bobby O'Neill, a ride home. The night Elnor's body was found, which was again that Friday night, Leonard told Huckel that on the night of the murder, he had given Mr. O'Neill a ride home from work, and that caused him to be home later than usual. So again, and forgive me for repeating, but I know a lot of these times, especially with the midnights in there, kind of get things confused sometimes. So the murder happened Thursday night. Friday night, her body is found. Leonard gets there that night into the next morning. At that time, he tells Detective Huckel that the night before, which was the Thursday night, the night of the murder, 
that he had given Bobby O'Neill a ride home, and that's why he got home late that night. But then later he changes his tune and says that he actually gave Mr. O'Neill the ride home on Friday night, the night the body was found, not the night of the murder. But that creates even more problems in his testimony. Now this is going to get even more confusing, so please try to bear with me. I'll sum it up at the end. So Leonard testified that on the night Elnor's body was found, he was told about it by his brother. He says that he got home from work that night, this is that Friday night, went to bed, and his brother came over and woke him up. His brother, supposedly, was on his way home from church late on Friday night, and he saw the lights at Elnor's trailer, and he stopped by and he found out that she was dead. Leonard testifies that his brother then went to his house and that he woke him up around 12.30 that night. Now remember, Leonard testified that he normally got home from work around 10 minutes after midnight, between 12.10 and 12.15. So he's saying that when his brother showed up at 12.30, he was already asleep, and that his brother had to wake him up. But now that he's changed his testimony, and he's saying the ride he gave to Bobby O'Neill didn't happen Thursday, but it actually happened that night, that Friday, that would have put him home even later. Again, normal time, 12.10, 12.15. He's saying that this night, he gave Bobby O'Neill a ride home, which would have put him home at, say, 12.45, 1 o'clock in the morning. But then he also says that he was asleep that night at 12.30 when his brother came by. And like I said, I know this is confusing, so there's a quick review. He first says that he got home late on Thursday because he gave O'Neill a ride home. Then he says his brother woke him up at 12.30 on Friday, actually Saturday morning, telling him Elnora was dead. But then he says that he gave the ride to O'Neill on Friday, not Thursday, which would have put him home after 12.30, meaning he couldn't have been asleep when his brother came at 12.30 to tell him that Elnora was dead. There's no indication in any of the paperwork that I have that Bobby O'Neill was ever contacted by the police to verify any of this story. So what does all this mean? I don't know yet, but it's inconsistent. That's all I can say for certain at this point. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. A couple of months after Ed's arrest, his defense team had a private detective working for them named Tim Lowndes. Lowndes was a former Tyler Police Department cop, and he turned P.I. in 1994. Lowndes' job was to investigate the case for the defense. In the spring of 1994, Lowndes interviewed Leonard Mosley on three different occasions. In a trial, Leonard Mosley and Tim Lowndes had conflicting testimonies. Mosley denies some of the statements made by Lowndes, and others he says that he was lying or, quote, leading him on because he knew that Lowndes was trying to get information from him and he wanted to get information from Lowndes. 
Moving forward, I want to make sure that we have the understanding that Leonard Mosley denies saying some of these things. But this is what Tim Lowndes says happened in those interviews. Lowndes says that Leonard told him that Elnora had received a call from her daughter at 11 p.m. the night she was killed. He also told Lowndes that Ed could not have done it because Elnora called him at work around 11 that same night. Now, this is what Lowndes had in his notes about that interview. But at trial, Leonard denies having ever said that. But Leonard also had some very disturbing information. When he was interviewing with Lowndes, he described the crime scene, the position of Elnora's body, and her injuries. Leonard should not have knowledge of any of this information. He was never in the crime scene, and according to him, was never told about any of this from the cops. He says that he was given this information by someone who he suspects committed the murder. Lowndes says that Leonard refused to tell him who the suspect was, and that he even offered to go with Leonard to talk to the suspect, but Mosley refused. Leonard said that he had a suspect, and the suspect was someone who was in a relationship with Elnora, and that Elnora owed that person money. And again, he says this suspect is the one that gave him information about the crime scene details. So to summarize these interviews with Lowndes, back in 94, Mosley said that it couldn't have been Edward Eights, that Elnora called him around 11 o'clock at night at work. He also said that she received a phone call from her daughter. And again, I don't have any indication that anyone ever talked to her daughter to try to verify this. And not only does he not think it's Edward Eights, but he thinks he knows who it is and that it's a person that was in a relationship with Elnora, a person that she owed money to a person that had detailed knowledge of the crime scene. But by the time the trial came around, he wasn't admitting to any of this. And before I close today's show, I want to break down a summary of everything we know about Leonard Mosley. And I know this is a shorter episode than most, and we may have a few of these in the next several weeks. And the reason for that is, I want to make sure that we focus on one element at a time of this crime scene. This is a very complicated case, like I said several episodes ago. And I don't want to give too much information all at the same time, because I want to make sure everyone has time to absorb every element of this as they're trying to work through this crime and this investigation. So in summary, we know that Leonard Mosley's routine was to go to Elnora's house every Thursday after work. He says that he would arrive there about 10 minutes after midnight, and he says that Elnora would cook him a meal for him to eat when he arrived. He says that part of that routine is that he would spend the night with her. We know that he was planning to go there that night, and that she was expecting him to be there. He says that he didn't go because he had to work Friday and he didn't have work clothes, and he claims that he went straight home and arrived home at 10 minutes after 12. We know that his statements are completely inconsistent. When you compare his statements to Detective Huckel, they change from one statement to the next. Then you throw in the statements he made to the private investigator, Tim Lowndes. And then you compare those to his trial testimony. And then when you just look at his trial testimony in general, he contradicts himself throughout that testimony. Most of this was missed by the defense. And to be honest, I think the defense absolutely blew it when it comes to Leonard Mosley. When you read the transcripts, you'll see they were fighting like hell to put Leonard Mosley on that crime scene. And maybe he was there. And maybe he wasn't. But the fact is that they took the wrong angle on this defense. They didn't need to put Leonard Mosley in that trailer. They needed to prove that Edward Eights was not in the trailer. 
and Leonard gave him the testimony to do that, at least to make a hell of an attempt at it. Because of his testimony, we know that Elnora was expecting him to come over, whether he showed up or not, at around midnight. We know that she cooked a meal for him. The meal was still sitting on the stove when her body was found the next day. One chicken breast with gravy and a pan of rice. The way Leonard described it at trial didn't sound to me like Elnora was giving him leftovers when he showed up, but rather that she cooked a hot meal especially for him. Between his testimony and the evidence on the crime scene, it's at least a logical hypothesis that she cooked that fresh meal for him expecting him to show up at midnight. And if we know that, we have to ask ourselves, when would she have started cooking that meal? How long does it take to cook a chicken breast? Would she have cooked it at 10 o'clock at night and let it sit on the stove for two hours until he got there? I don't think that's likely. I think that it's far more likely that she would have started cooking that meal sometime after 11, so that it would be done and ready and still hot when he arrived after midnight. And the fact that that meal was completely cooked, and the burners were turned off, and it was sitting on the stove waiting for him, is a really good indication that Elnora Griffin was still alive after 11 p.m. And we know that worst-case scenario, Edward Eights was gone by 11, because he was at Monica Bush's house by 11.20. This is the defense that Ed's lawyers should have been driving into the jury's heads. The devil's in the details. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. And remember that you can purchase any of the songs or the entire album, Truth and Justice the Music, on iTunes. And if you'd like to preview the songs, you can go to truthandjusticemusic.com. I'd also like to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thanks to Daniel Schaefer for editing the podcast. Thank you to all of today's sponsors for supporting the show. Libertarianism.org, the Sundance Now Doc Club, and Stamps.com. And thanks to all of you for your continued input, engagement, and support. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Stay engaged. Stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.